There's something unique about the church, something sacred that goes far beyond bricks and mortar and property and the land upon which we build our houses of worship. Something that even outshines her purpose. Now, other institutions own property, other institutions and organizations have mission statements. Neither of those two characteristics are unique to the church. In fact, other groups may have better buildings and even more strategic sounding statements. But none of them can ever compete with this. The church is a living being. The church is alive. Now, Paul says he actually became a minister of the gospel in order to teach this to people. That was his reason for serving. You can see that in Colossians 1, 25 through 27. He actually says this, just quoting him. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, at the cross, Jesus not only performed something powerful in each of us. Remember, we were all included in Christ. I spoke about that several episodes ago. He also reconciled all things, all of us, into a single entity. In the Old Testament, he lived among, that's the word, he lived among the children of Israel. In Jesus, he came near and he walked with us. He was even closer. You see that in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now he lives in us. As Paul said, Christ is in you. Now, one of the things I talked about, oh goodness, in episodes one through five of this series is that Jesus lives in each of us. For us to live means for him to live through us, expressing his very life in our words and in our deeds. We are now his dwelling place. Though his presence works powerfully in each of us individually, though, when we come together, we express him in an even greater way. As individuals, he lives through us. As a group, he is us. Catch the difference. As individuals, he lives through us. As a group, he is us. Now, I know I'm going to have to back that out, so let me go ahead and start backing it up. Christ literally reconciled all of God's people into a single entity, a group that collectively expresses him. In Ephesians 2, 16 through 22, let me just read you the English Standard Version. Paul explains that Christ died so that, here's the quote, that he might reconcile us into one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that's the end of the quote. Now, for sure, no one anticipated any of this, not even the angels. In fact, Paul continues his argument above, stating that the church shows, here's the quote, every living being in all of creation. It shows them something that God clearly intended to reveal from the very beginning. Let me read Ephesians 3, 9, and 10 to you. Here's what it says. 
that he did this, quote, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Did you catch that? That through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So though every cosmic being missed it on the front end, when you look at it, God's plan in hindsight, it's obvious what he was doing. He wasn't only going to walk with this people as he had done with Adam and Eve in the garden. No, he planned to walk with them and then be in them and then move through them. And as a result, Scripture uses a unique metaphor. Scripture says this, that the church is Jesus' body. Now, Paul first uses the metaphor of the body in Romans 12, 4 through 6. He says this. I'm going to quote the scripture again. For as we have many members in one body. So he's talking about our human bodies, but all the members do not all have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Now that metaphor, it appears in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 also. Here it is. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of one spirit. Now, now notice this. Christ's body has many members from many different backgrounds, just like we read a few pages ago when I quoted Ephesians 2 to you. In the church, he's reconciled groups who were once hostile to one another. And the unifying factor is the Spirit of God himself. Now we also see this image of the body in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Scripture emphasizes the point. Look in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. That's another example. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, earlier in this series of talks, the Life Lift series, I talked about the fact that Jesus shows us who we are. He reveals what we're really like. That was episode number two of, of this series. He also shows us what his church is like. Jesus reveals both who we are as individuals and who we are as a group. So when we look at Jesus, not only should we see our personal agenda, we also at the same time see the agenda for the church. One pastor actually writes this. It's Paul David Tripp. He's an incredible counselor. That's really his forte and just deep, rich spiritual disciplines and, and growth. The incarnation is not just an event. It also establishes an agenda. So the incarnation is the word that theologians use to talk about the coming of Christ when he came and literally lived and walked among us. The incarnation began on the first Christmas morning. So the incarnation is not just an event. It also establishes an agenda, a set of plans to accomplish a goal. God's agenda is for the church to be an incarnational community on earth so that our very presence would reveal his grace and truth and even his glory. Now, as as in a human body, the significance of the parts of the body of Christ is in the connection itself. But Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians 12, 14, that the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
And Paul reminds us of several truths related to that connection. Here are three of those truths. First of all, we need each other. Now, from time to time, we may think that we don't need the church, but we do. 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 21 says this, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make the foot any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand of the feet, I have no need of you. Now, think about it. Paul's drawing a correlation between our human body and what he's referring to as the body of Christ. Think about how valuable an eyeball would be without a head. Or how valuable would a hand be without an arm or a stomach without a torso? It's actually somewhat odd to think about. And the reality is that you must have a certain number of parts together or you don't actually having a functioning body at all. I mean, yes, Jesus is present where two or three are gathered together. That's an argument people use all of the time to avoid the larger church and simply remain isolated. That's in Matthew 18, 20. But the truth is that Jesus is always with all of us, even when there aren't two or more of us. He says that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'm with you always. In Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you or forsake you. I mean, it's, it's gotten in vogue to say something like, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, or I worship on my own, and I completely understand. I get it. A lot of people have been hurt by church people. Here's the issue, though. Human bodies can't stay alive, much less thrive on their own. Dismembered arms and legs, they forfeit connection to the life source by losing connection to their body, and as a result, they die. In the same way, it's impossible to properly connect to the head, Christ, without maintaining healthy connection to his body. To connect to one implies connecting to the other. Second, we're all an important part of the body, the church. Now, Paul reminds us that even the parts of the body, the people that we may feel have a minor role, are actually critical to the overall health of the church. Now, think about it. If you were required to cut off 5% of your human body right now, which part would you hack off? The answer is none. Human bodies don't function well with really any part missing. No, neither does the church. Paul clarifies this in 1 Corinthians 12, 20 through, through 25. He says, quote, The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. You see, there's something that every joint supplies, according to Ephesians 4.16. Something that, uh, here's the quote, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that the body builds itself up in love. Now third, we share the experience of others in the body. About once a week, I, I step on a Lego piece that's been left behind by one of my boys. My barefoot immediately shoots a signal through my entire body, causing shock waves of intense pain. You've 
probably experienced something similar. A small sore on your arm, it causes your entire body to feel sluggish. An achy throat, it prevents you from even going to work. A sore muscle, it keeps you grounded from the gym. Well, Paul tells us that the church should be the exact same way. When one person in the body suffers, everyone feels the pain, like our human bodies. Now, notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In another letter, we read him say, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are literally Jesus' hands and feet in the world. We're all parts of that body, yet body parts don't really make sense or function apart from the connection to the body as a whole. In a real sense, we need each other to present a complete picture of who Jesus is. We need each other to actually experience him in the fullest possible way as well. Now, in episode nine of this Life Lift series, I, I really talk with you about Philip's story. He was one of the seven men chosen to be the first deacons in Acts 6, uh, 1 and following. After persecution rattled the early church, he moved to Samaria where he led a revival. And although he was originally tapped to minister with his hands while the apostles ministered with their words, we later see him lead a full-blown regional transformation. That revival included physical healings in Acts 8, 7. It included freedom from demonic oppression in Acts 8-7. It included mass conversions in Acts 8-12. It included the baptism of a local witch doctor in Acts 8-13. In other words, here's what happened. Philip's capacity for ministry, it increased from managing the distribution of food to widows in the first megachurch to something that was radically different. Now, his story continued well beyond that revival. Peter and John traveled from Jerusalem to Samaria to pray for the new disciples that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts 8, 14 through 15. And when they returned to Jerusalem, Philip traveled towards Gaza in another direction. The reason Philip left Samaria was because an angel told him to do so, implying an ongoing relationship of intimacy and hearing the voice of God and his messengers. Now, while on the road, he came near the chariot of a man who had just traveled to Jerusalem to worship. That man happened to be the chief financial officer of Ethiopia. The Holy Spirit instructed Philip to approach the chariot, Acts 8.29. As an important official in the government, the sojourner was likely heavily guarded. Philip complied anyway and led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Jesus as he rode with him. Now, along the way, the Ethiopian saw a body of water. He remembered Philip's words about baptism, and he asked if anything prevented him from taking the plunge. Since nothing did, at the official's command, the chariot stopped. Philip baptized him, signifying that this foreigner had also been included in Christ and, as a result, become part of his body, the same body that Philip was a part of. The story gets even more interesting, though. Luke tells us that as soon as they emerged from the water, something startling happened. Something we hadn't seen occur since the days of Elijah. And, and I noticed this. It's in Acts 8, 39 through 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, he appeared at Azotus, and he traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns there until he reached Caesarea. Philip, the one who began as a deacon, 
teleported away from the baptism and continued traveling, preaching as he went. And again, this is something that we hadn't seen since the days of Elijah back in 1 Kings 18, 10 through 12. Now, later in the book, Paul and Luke meet Philip. He's no longer referred to as a deacon. He's formally called an evangelist. Luke writes that when they arrived at Caesarea, they, here's the quote, entered the house of Philip the evangelist. And Luke clarifies that this wasn't just another man who happened to have the same name. He says that this Philip, and here's the quote from Acts 21.8, was one of the seven. Now here's the significance of the title evangelist. It's one of the five ministry roles we see in Ephesians 4. Paul tells us that when Jesus ascended to his throne and poured out the Holy Spirit and the accompanying spiritual gifts, that he also did something else. Jesus not only gave spiritual gifts to his people, he also gave them spiritual leaders to encourage, equip, and empower them in their growth. Now, there are five of these roles. Ephesians 4.11, it says this, And he himself, he gave some to be, number one, apostles, some, two, prophets, some, three, evangelists, some, four, pastors, and number five, teachers. These ministers are sometimes referred to as fivefold leaders. Now, the name you use isn't as important as recognizing what they're called to do. And we read their function, why Jesus gave them to us in the very next verse, which is really part of the same long sentence. He gave them, according to Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, let me reread it all together. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, Paul explained that the job of the leaders of the church is not to do ministry themselves, but to equip others to do ministry. God gave these leaders in order to help us become a fully functioning body of Christ. Now, now notice this, Ephesians 4 13 and 15 through 16. He, he did this until we all attained to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, in many churches, the congregation leads through boards and committees and votes and bylaws and, and even Robert's Rules of Order. Now, don't laugh. I've been there, done it, and have the scars to prove it. When the congregations lead, they often shift the responsibility for ministry to the pastors. They want them to visit the hospitals. They want them to lead the Bible studies. They want them to pray for the sick. Now, why would we do that, they often ask. And that's why we pay them, and that's what we pay them to do. Well, though they should never step away from active ministry, the biblical paradigm is the exact opposite of what most churches today do. Pastors and other leaders should lead well and delegate most of the ministry to the members of the body. After all, there are far more members of the body than there are leaders in the body. And the members of the body, they should serve well and empower the fivefold to lead. And by the way, this is exactly how Jesus oversees his church today. He delegates virtually all of the ministry to the body as he leads. 
Now think back to what the apostles did in Acts 6. They led with the word of God and with prayer, delegating the majority of the hands-on ministry to the others. That's in Acts 6, 3 through 4. None of us can do the work that Christ calls us to do on our own. Together, though, we comprise the body. And though Christ is with all of us personally, when we walk together, he's present in a more profound way. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Again, the church is the body of Christ, and we are all members of that body. Collectively, we are his presence in a powerful, supernatural, super unique way. As such, it's imperative that those who are called to equip actually empower the saints to fulfill their ministry. Now, I want you to think about that word right there, equip, because it says that he gave that fivefold to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That word equip, it literally means to make fit, to train, or to prepare. Some Bible commentators remind us that equip is the same word used to denote setting a broken bone. In a real sense, when we equip someone, we are placing them at their proper place in the body just as a surgeon does. Well, what's the difference between these leaders and other members of the body? Well, some theologians say it like this. Most Christians have gifts. These people are gifts. Or most Christians express gifts. These people embody gifts. Now, the distinction we've created between clergy and laymen, it doesn't really exist in the Bible. However, we do see the distinction between those who are called to be equippers and those who are called to minister. Regardless of their role, though, everyone is called to build the body of Christ. So Jesus gives equippers to the church in order to empower them, the church members, for the work of ministry. He gives spiritual gifts to the members of the body in order to enable him to express his supernatural power and presence to those around them by using those people. So in the show notes, I have a graphic. It says two types of gifts that King Jesus gives his people. And then it has one role is the equippers. That's the fivefold, Ephesians 4.11. He's given these people to encourage, to equip, and to empower the saints for the work of ministry. You know, some are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And then spiritual gifts, those are supernatural empowerments to the saints, the expression of the Holy Spirit moving through them, like we see in Romans 12, 4 and following and 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and following. Now let's go back to Philip's story because there's something else that we read about him. Luke tells us this, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's Acts 21, 9. Now, most Bible scholars agree that these four women weren't just prophesying via the gift of prophecy that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 14, but they too were the embodiment of one of those leadership positions. Of course, Paul says that he wants everyone to be able to prophesy in 1 Corinthians 14, 5. But again, in Ephesians 4, we see that apostles, prophets is one of the fivefold evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Well, that leads me to the follow-up question is, how did Philip move from one role as a deacon to the other role? How, how did he shift from being a minister to an equipper? And then what about his family? How did they grow? Well, the honest answer is we really don't know. The Bible doesn't provide us with a formula. However, Psalms 92.13, it reminds us that those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish. And here's what I get from that. The, the more we connect with the body, 
the more healthy we become and the more we grow. You don't find any human body parts that are alive that are separated from a living body. And in some sense, what Paul is driving and encouraging us to in the most gracious way possible is that you and I are designed to walk together in spiritual connection and community with a group of people. Now, it may or may not be defined and probably isn't defined by a building or an address because remember, as we started off this talk, other organizations have those. The church is unique and that the church is alive. And so the more we connect with the body, the more healthy we become and the more we grow. And I want you to notice what happens as the leaders equip us at Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. Paul says this, that, that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by a craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, we don't fall prey, we don't fall trapped to all of the other clutter that so many people can easily, that honestly, we can easily get tripped up in. He says, we're no longer tossed to and fro by just the stuff of life, but rather, here's his quote, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, we become more like Christ. Like Philip, we grow, yet we don't reach that goal on our own. We reach that goal together. And that leads us back to connection with the body. Our gifts most often come fully alive when we're connected. A spiritual gifts test or skills assessment is just a tool to show you where you might be gifted. The true verification is in the action. And the more we use the gifts in the context of close relationship, the more helpful feedback we receive and the more we grow and develop those gifts. And it helps us find out where we fit in and what our purpose and plan is for expressing the grace and goodness of the Creator as He flows through us in a unique way. Do you see it? Well, my prayer for you is that the Lord would bless you, that the Lord would keep you, that the Lord would be gracious. He'd shine his face of favor upon you. And then in a unique way that you would find that supernatural connection, that you would find a community of faith, people that would rally their arms around you, that would know the good, the bad, the great, the ordinary, and that would do life with you. And in the doing of the life with you, that those gifts would begin expressing themselves, that you would grow, that they would grow, and that you together would find the purpose for which you're created. Grace, peace, and until next time, shalom.